So in ancient Greece, around 620 BC, was born a storyteller whose stories would impact generations of people the world over. His name was Aesop. He's believed to have been a slave in Greece who became known for the powerful stories he told that concisely demonstrated important truths about human life. And one of these stories went something like this. One day, it occurred to the members of the body that they were doing all the work while the belly had all the food. So they held a meeting and they decided to strike till the belly consented to its proper share of the work. For a day or two, the hands refused to take the food, the mouth refused to receive it, and the teeth had no work to do. After a day or two, the members began to find that they themselves were in poor condition. The hands could hardly move, the mouth was parched and dry, while the legs were unable to support the rest. Thus, even the belly was doing necessary work for the body, and all must work together or the body will go to pieces. So this story spoke to people in Aesop's time and beyond about what it meant to be a part of a social community. It had obvious political implications, and it's been refer referred to for generations in political conversations. Most famously, in the 5th century BC, not, not too long after the story was written, the ruling class of Rome, the patricians, found themselves in distress. The class of commoners, known as the plebeians or the plebs, uh, were not being represented in their government of this young republic at the time. And so they were incensed at their lack of representation. And when their protests for their rights went unheeded by the ruling citizens, the community of plebeians decided to take more dramatic action. En masse, the whole class of plebeians seceded from the city of Rome, and they departed to a nearby sacred mountain where they set up camp and they fortified themselves. Now the patricians had a problem. They knew they couldn't function as a society without any merchants or farmers or day laborers. They needed to negotiate with this plebeian, the plebeian secessionists. So the man chosen to handle the negotiations was from the political class. He was a former consul of the Republic, a man named Agrippa Menenius Latinus. And though he was a politician, he had, was more trusted by the plebs because he, it was said that he was descended from plebeians himself. So Agrippa Menenius met with the group and told them Aesop's fable of the belly and the members. Such is the case, ye citizens, he said, between you and the Senate. The councils and plans that are there are duly digested, convey and secure to all of you your proper benefit and support. Apparently the argument was compelling. The plebeians recognized that while their concerns over representation were certainly legitimate, they, they too did actually benefit from the work of the government. However, the plebeians recognized that the status quo was unjust and they agreed to return to Rome with an important condition. A new legislative group was created, the tribunes, who were elected from and by the plebeians and could serve as an important legislative check on the patricians. The story of a Greek slave impacted a burgeoning government in a major way. 
the various body parts had negotiated a plan to work together. And this story laid the foundation for an understanding in Rome and the governments that would be based upon it for centuries, known as the body politic. Well, today is the first Sunday in a new fall teaching series, a series we're calling Remembering the Collective. In this coming series, we're acknowledging that we're now six months into a reality that is unique for most of us in our lifetime. Sorry. In the last, so, so I'm going to try that again. In this, in this coming series, we're acknowledging that we're now six months into a reality that's unique for most of us in our lifetime. In the last half a year, we've perhaps only seen a handful of people in person for any extended period of time. Thanks to COVID-19, our social interactions have been severely limited and reduced to virtual events, text messages, other forms of remote communication. Haven hasn't held an in-person gathering since the first Sunday in March. Though we've had virtual services like this that many folks have been connecting to via Zoom or YouTube, we all can acknowledge it's definitely not the same as sharing physical space together. And of course, church is only one of many places where we feel that strangeness of prolonged social distancing. Many of our kids have interacted with their teachers and classmates in this new school year only through Zoom or Google Meet. Some of us may have started at new workplaces in the last six months, but we've never actually left our homes. We haven't actually met our coworkers outside of a screen. We've attended weddings graduations, other gatherings that would generally be large family events virtually. And as an election looms, a season that for many of us would, would normally be filled with large in-person events or perhaps neighborhood door knocking, instead we find ourselves with another series of Zoom calls, text blowing up our phone, and so on. Furthermore, as our in-person touch points have been replaced with virtual ones, we have found our silos of information and ideology growing in their power over us. Social media plays a bigger role perhaps than ever in bringing the world to us. And as it does, our political conversations often make it clear we are not a body working cooperatively or even working from a shared understanding of reality. Our body politics seems to be coming a part of the seams. It's a challenging time. Even with all of the technological innovations we've seen in recent months, it can feel really hard for any of us to feel like we're actually a part of something bigger that brings life. So recognizing all of that, this fall, we're gonna move to a new conversation, a part of the Bible that's different from where we've been throughout the summer. For the last few months, we've been talking about the ancient Babylonian exile. We've considered how people of faith coped with being separated from their land and in, in a period of profound crisis for a long time. But there was one thing those exiles had. They had each other. They were a minority community that had a profound experience of cohesion and unity in the midst of shared adversity. For this season, we're going to turn our focus to a part of our biblical narrative that was very different, but that might resonate for us in other helpful ways right now. This is a season where the experience of unity and collectivity 
was challenging for folks. People in this period were having a hard time experiencing themselves as part of a cohesive group, like, like we may be feeling. They were experiencing lots of conflicts, tension, uncertainty on what it even meant to be a community. The season we're going to look at comes in the wake of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It was the season of the church being established and growing and trying to experience its own collectivity. And one place where this seemed to be particularly challenging was in the spiritual community that was being established in a city called Corinth. We see the drama addressed in letters written by the Apostle Paul to the churches there as he tries to help them sort out their challenges growing in togetherness. So throughout this series, we're going to focus on a section of one of these letters he writes, where what's come to be known to us as 1 Corinthians. As we look at the, these passages, I'm sure many of them will feel familiar to those of us who've spent any significant time in church. But I would offer that none of us have likely considered them in the context that we're living in now, in this 2020 moment. And that might bring new insight, new clarity to the challenges our ancestors in the early church faced, as well as allow these familiar words to ring hopefully in new helpful ways to us. So before we get into today's text, that will be kind of the anchor point of this series, I just wanna name a bit about the context that this letter to the church in Corinth comes in. So what was 1 Corinthians about exactly? What's going on there? As I mentioned before, the letter was written by the Apostle Paul, one of the main leaders of the early church. It was likely written a couple of decades after the life of Jesus. Paul had been traveling through various areas of the known world, spreading news about Jesus to both Jewish communities living throughout the Roman Empire, as well as non-Jews, the people known as Gentiles. And through these efforts, Paul had gone to Corinth and established a church there, staying over a year to get this new fledgling community off the ground and then moved on. So later, a few years later, he's, starting work, he's working on starting a church in Ephesus, and he starts hearing of these challenges happening to the young church in Corinth, and he wrote a letter to address some of them. Now, to understand what some of the unique challenges in Corinth might have been, it's helpful to know a bit about the city. Corinth was a cosmopolitan Greco-Roman city. It had originally been a Greek city. In fact, it was in Corinth about 200 years before this that the Romans won their decisive battle that assured their power over all of Greece. And so now this whole Greek region was part of the Roman Empire. Corinth was a hub for trade. I think we have a, a map that will show you just a bit of its unique geography positioned on an isthmus between two different bodies of water. So that allowed it to be kind of a hub for trade. Here comes the map. You can also see where it is in relationship to Athens. But Corinth is right there on that isthmus. So, you know, so people would come and bring, bring things into one port and then carry them across and trade through Corinth to ship them off somewhere else. Um, what else? Okay. So in, in addition to trade, that wasn't the only thing the city was known for. It was an important seat of government in the area, and it was also a religious center, specifically for the cult of Aphrodite, a cult whose worship centered around sexual acts with throngs of temple prostitutes. 
On top of all that, in the midst of this very Greco-Roman city, you had a diaspora Jewish community also living and worshiping, often with very, very different cultural practices from their Greco-Roman neighbors. So this young Corinthian church drew from all of the spectrum of the people that were living in Corinth, a variety of folks with many different life experiences who were all trying to do life in this same multicultural city. And inevitably, they experienced some tensions as the community grew. And many of those were the tensions that Paul was trying to speak into as he wrote from Ephesus back to his friends in Corinth. The tensions had bubbled up in different ways. There were factions forming within the group with different members of the community, like identifying with certain spiritual leaders over others. It would be like folks in Haven joining like, I'm Team Jeannie versus Team Leah. Um, that was kind of going on. There were activities that some community members thought were like totally normal and fine, and others found them deeply offensive. And all of this was in a setting where even trying to establish a Christian spiritual community was suspect. It was a bit subversive. Often you had to gather in the privacy of someone's home because the movement was seen as, as subversive, as, as potentially dangerous to both the Jewish people who were gathering in the synagogue as well as the Gentiles in the broader community. It was suspect. So gathering in large groups in public, that was not really an option. You were kind of confined to small gatherings in people's homes and to interacting through, through letters like, like this one that was written back and forth. So today, we're just going to look at one passage from this letter to that church. It's a passage that comes well into the letter, but I think it anchors much of what Paul was trying to say about what it meant to be a collective centered in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to go ahead and read it and we'll get into it. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the hand cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are un unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put this body together, together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices 
with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So here we have this passage in a letter from Paul to a church that's struggling to live collectively. And as a well-educated man, which he was, who had studied both Jewish and Greek thought, speaking to a diverse audience in a Greek city, he seems to intentionally be referencing this fable of Aesop. It's an intentional choice. He's, he's riffing off the fable. He knows his audience knows this story. The imagery of the body parts struggling with each other is clearly familiar to them. But here, Paul isn't talking about the state. His focus isn't the body politic per se. He's talking about a different collective. He's inviting his listeners to consider. So what's this collective Paul's describing? Well, the first thing I notice is that the collective is the current embodiment of the Christ in the world. For Paul, it's the current embodiment of the Christ in the world. This is not just any body Paul is describing. This for him is, is unique. His audiences have been a part of other bodies in the past, but this one is different. This is a body that for Paul reveals the divine character in a unique way. He calls it the body of Christ. What does that even mean? Remember that the literal meaning of the Christ was the anointed one. It's, it's the Greek word for what the Hebrews called Messiah. Last week, we talked about the reality that the God of the Bible is, is spoken of throughout the Hebrew Bible as a God that can be spoken of by many names. Israel had long understood that no one name could fully encapsulate the divine character. In fact, the only name that God gives themselves in the Hebrew Bible was pronounced something like Yahweh and simply meant, I am. I exist. I am what I am. But this understanding of God develops in the Christian tradition. Though no one image can reveal God, Jesus is understood to be the clearest revealer of God's nature, God in the flesh, as we say. The life he lives, the teachings he gives, the suffering he undergoes, his ultimate resurrection. He becomes the Christ, the anointed one, the one set aside both to bring freedom to, to the people, to bring healing, and to bring a clearer revelation of the divine that comes through him. But it is not meant to end with him. One man is still not really enough. God is revealed first through this person of Jesus, but ultimately now through a collective that has been anointed by God's spirit to be the revealers of the divine, the embodiment of Christ. So how does that happen? Paul uses the image of being baptized by one Spirit. Now, this word may conjure up certain images for us of like a ceremony of, of sprinkling with water, and that might be what he's referring to. But the word he's using in Greek, you know, that we're translating here, baptized, it actually just means immersed. It's being immersed in something. So for Paul, what he's really saying is each of you, young followers of Jesus in Corinth, you have been immersed 
in God's spirit. And that divine presence has surrounded you. It has overtaken you. You have now drank of it. And that has brought you into a collective that is bigger than any of your individual spiritual experiences. It's not just about your connection with Jesus. It's not simply about having this personal, powerful experience of faith, though that's important. It's not even about what's happening in your small little house church alone, right? Ultimately, this collective that this, spring, this spirit is bringing together is something bigger. And it is the embodiment of Christ in the world. So we have the idea that Paul is inviting them to see themselves as a collective that is the very embodiment of Christ. But what is that collective like? Well, the second thing I notice is that the divine spirit subverts human categories to build its collective identity. I'll say that again. The divine spirit subverts human categories to build its collective identity. So this month, as as Josh mentioned, a number of us in the Haven community have been reading this brilliant book by Isabel Wilkerson called Cast. And in the book, Wilkerson draws direct comparisons between three major social hierarchies and three different cultures that have all had devastating and destructive impacts. The system in India, with which many of us associate the word caste, the system developed by the Nazis in Germany in the mid 20th century, and the system that she demonstrates the Nazis actually based their own caste formation upon, our own racial hierarchy here in the United States. The book lays out clearly how these hierarchical systems develop and they maintain themselves in ways that divide people into social groups, allowing some groups to thrive at the expense of others. And once a system's in place, many in the system kind of works itself to maintain the status quo. And people kind of work with it, often unwittingly, not understanding that they're actually, the choices they're making are acting out in accordance with their caste role. Well, interestingly, the first century Greco-Roman world had its own caste system. There were a variety of classes and intersections of identity there too that had social meaning. Upper caste identities included those throughout the empire who'd been granted Roman citizenship, privileged people like Paul himself, Lower caste people included slaves, many subsistence laborers, a large percentage of the population. There was very little social mobility and many upper caste people took great pains to communicate to everyone their social status. They would never want it questioned. But here, Paul seems to be naming that the spirit of God is not invested in those human social categories. If anything, The spirit wants to upend them. The spirit wants to demolish this caste system. Paul specifically name checks some of the categories here, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, all of you are part of the same body. He says, those old categories don't hold the same meaning here. No one has more value than anyone else. This is a place where I think we see a subtle difference from Aesop's fable 
as Paul describes more how he imagines the body of Christ to function. In the fable, the belly is conceived of as the part that's potentially exploitive, taking from the labor of others without contributing its own work. In the end, the other members are forced to concede that yes, they actually do need what the belly contributes to. But that concession does not actually change the status of any of the body parts. It could simply be seen as encouraging you to just accept your calf status as a foot and not a belly and accept that you do need what the belly can give you. In caste systems, roles in, in society are assigned based on assumptions that certain roles fit certain people just because of their social status. You were born a foot, so you're a foot, not a belly. But interestingly, as we'll see probably in future weeks in this series, Paul uses this analogy of the body in the midst of a discussion he's having about a variety of different gifts and different a, a community members' abilities that he sees demonstrated. For him, your role seems not based on what social group you were born into, but on what personal gifts and aptitudes you possess. You're not simply born a foot and that's your life in life. That's the role you are assigned. You are a foot if you're, you're the one who's best at walking. Interestingly, Paul's version has no belly. I think that's an intentional choice. He's like taking the upper caste role off the table and he's focusing on every body part that clearly has an important function to contribute. Every body part clearly matters to him and where there's concern about potentially some body parts needing to be treated uniquely, it's according to their respective needs. Some body parts have different needs than others and they are given special care and attention. He cares specifically about giving special honor to those who would otherwise be deemed by the social norms dishonorable. Paul seems to understand that social categories separate people and cause them to limit their concern for one another. But this is counter to the collective of Christ. As Paul says in verse 23, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, if, if every part suffers with it, if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. We are living through a moment in U.S. history where our social categories are activated in such deep ways now, they are threatening to tear our national body apart. This is far from the only time, but it is perhaps one of the most fraught any of us have lived through. Now more than ever, I believe all of us need this kind of collective, a collective that can live into equal concern for all of its members, equal concern for the Briannas as much as the Beckys. We need this heart of equal concern. Sometimes it feels like rather than weeping with those who weep, we see in our, in our culture a spirit of rejoicing in the suffering of others, of celebrating another's grief. I believe this joy in another's suffering stems from a deep evil 
that has fed so much darkness in the past. It is wholly counter to the heart of God that we see in Jesus. In this time, as much as ever, if we are to find a way of wholeness and healing going forward, I think we must follow the Spirit into these places of expanding our collective capacity to feel with others, to suffer with those who suffer, as well as to rejoice with those who are honored. Finally, the third thing I notice Paul saying in his vision of the body of Christ is this. The collective is most effective when it values and honors difference. The collective is most effective when it values and honors difference. The goal of the body working harmoniously together is unity, not uniformity. The body doesn't work well when all the parts are the same. It works best when each of us have what we need. We're each released to be ourselves and contribute our strengths and gifts. In Paul's illustration, the body parts can't choose to leave the body just because they think they don't belong because they're different. It doesn't make them not part of the body. Neither can anyone choose to exclude another body part. It's as if Paul's saying, this isn't up to you. You don't get to make the categories in this body. You don't get to decide who's in and who's out. The spirit has put the body together. The spirit knows what it's doing. Remember, the body this spirit is putting together is called the body of Christ, the body anointed to reveal God's very self. And this needs to reflect God's immense creativity if it's going to reveal the nature of God. God is more than one thing. Friends, God's not white. God's not male. God's not cisgender. God's not heterosexual. God's not a Republican. Honestly, God's not a Democrat either. The divine is beyond all of our human categories and reveals themselves in some way in all of their creation. So if a collective is supposed to represent this divine one, the collective must reflect the creativity of its creator through a diverse body of image bearers of God. Friends, I sincerely believe we are made to be a part of a glorious collective that reveals God's heart as it subverts human categories and honors our differences. That is what we are made for. That is the vision Paul was sharing with the community in Corinth 2,000 years ago, and it's a vision I think we need to recover today. Recalling this series, Remembering the Collective. And I want to end by naming the couple of things I think that phrase can mean and that I hope will be how this series can serve us over the coming weeks. In one sense, remembering the collective is about recalling, being reminded that we are a part of something bigger, despite social distancing, despite virtual services, despite the fact that Zoom Church doesn't work for a lot of our community members, we are still a haven collective 
Just because you don't attend Zoom church doesn't make you any less part of the body. We see you, we remember you, we haven't forgotten you. And we say we are still sacred community that I believe the spirit has knit together. And in this season where so much has driven us from one another physically, it's important work to recall our connections to one another and to the broader collectives that we are a part of. But there's another sense in which I think this phrase, remembering the collective, also rings. To dismember is to take something apart, to allow the members of the body to separate from one another. To remember is to restore, to bring together again that which ought to be connected but has been apart. The members of the body are restored to one another as we remember them. This is the work I hope we can be engaging in together in the weeks to come. I'm inviting us, Haven, to continue to find ways to put back together what has been separated in this, our little community and the broader communities we're a part of, to bring our parts to these collective bodies, to one another, and share whatever it is we have to contribute with one another and those around us. Oh, the weeks and days to come are no doubt going to be really fraught and contentious in many ways. Frankly, our body politic might fail us altogether. My hope is that as a community, we can hold together and experience anew the power of finding ourselves immersed by the spirit and brought into a collective that can demonstrate God's expansive heart for all cre creation. May we find